0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to this week's installment of the TCU Neely School of Business uh, Real Estate Webinar. Uh, my name is Carl Pankratz. I'm an adjunct professor at TCU and I'm also uh, the managing partner and president of Black Acre Commercial, the sponsor for today's event. So uh, without further ado, I'd love to to send this over to my partner in crime, my co-host, the the person that really makes this possible on a week to week basis, Christina Batista Rangel. Christina, what the heck's going on over at TCU?
1: Well, we are off to the races at TCU. The fall semester is rocking and rolling. We're so incredibly excited about all of our students who have started um, their graduate program at TCU. So they are either choosing to be in the classroom on campus, as safe as they can be, or they're participating in classes uh, virtually. So. We are excited to have them off and running, but even more excited that um, now we have the opportunity to really start recruiting for our spring cohort. So uh, we've opened up applications for this spring and we'll be bringing in students in January. Um, So we're just moving on to the next thing, but as always, we're super excited that we have incredible adjunct faculty like yourself who have literally created this from scratch. So an opportunity to engage with experts in industry, uh, providing insights about what's going on right now uh, with the economy and all other things um, is incredibly valuable for our students that are in the program, prospective students who are joining us considering the program, um, and even just business community partners and friends that tune in every week to join us. So it's always exciting to be here and uh, we're incredibly grateful for adjunct faculty like you, David carl and excited about having david join
0: us today yeah christine i gotta you know as a as an adjunct just so i'm teaching in person and i gotta say just the the way the classrooms are just mic'd up i mean the way that zoom has you know there's plenty of video cameras that it's almost it's a flawless execution whether you're in person or online i, I mean that just hats off to the it department i mean it's it's you know from a teaching perspective it really has been an easy process so i mean kudos i don't know what you've heard but really this on campus or off campus. It just seems like it's just been really well done.
1: Thanks, yeah, David can speak to it too. But we were really excited about opening the doors to our new, newest business school building on campus. And it was uh, naturally outfitted with top technology, right? So um, when the pandemic hit, we, we actually ended up being in, in a fairly great place to Handle the transition to moving things online and, and ensuring that our students have the best experience possible, um, regardless of the format of their class. So we're really grateful and thankful for that. Um, and, and we've been hearing nothing but good things. So that's fantastic. Thanks.
0: Yeah, great. Well, thank you, Christina. So one of the, you know, great things um, from seeing real estate from a lot of different perspectives is, you know, there's so many people that were able to make a considerable amount of money. Um, in this real estate cycle, but at some point you got to build an organization. And, uh, uh, you know, Associate Dean uh, David Allen has done a tremendous amount of research in organizations, whether it's organizational health, whether it's turnover, uh, whether it's having fun at work. And, I'm, you know, once I, I kind of heard what he was, his research, you know, I just thought, you know, you'd be perfect for what we have going on here. So I'd uh, like to bring in David. And uh, one, one thing I'd say before, um you know we kind of open it up to david it's just that you know I, I i'm blown away you know i I'm, this is my kind of year and a half of teaching at tcu the MBA program i'm just blown away by the level of student i mean we have you know people there's i've had students from the leadership programs at lockheed um you know right now you know we, we have a, a, a former soccer player and and uh it's just that it's it's just I've really been in awe of you know as I get as much out of them as, as I hope they get out of me and it's really just so fortunate to teach so many successful people but on the flip side of that it's I'm so 6 I'm so lucky to teach with with so many successful people and the faculty is just it's unbelievable um, the research is being done on a number of business levels and uh you know, I hope that we can get more TC faculty on this because, you know, I'm, again, I'm, I'm blown away by just their level of research and uh, just professionalism. And it's really neat to teach with them. And so with that, I'd like to introduce somebody I'm lucky to teach with, and that's David. Um, you know, David's the Associate Dean um, at, at TCU. Um, he's you know obviously written a lot of neat um, articles we're gonna go over. And David, if you don't mind, tell us a little about yourself.
2: Sure. I'd be happy to, Carl. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Uh, You know, I I will say just on that same note that you were talking about, we did an event, uh, kind of an icebreaker team builder uh, last year, where we were uh, passing out cards with quotes on them. And the team picked one out for me uh, that was, and I have it sitting on my bulletin board, you don't have to do this, you get to do this. Uh, Because we're so fortunate to work in an industry where we get to work with great students and and colleagues and we're helping people all the time uh, so it is a fantastic yeah. environment yeah. um i appreciate you having me i got i have two main uh jobs i think i mean one is i'm the henderson chair of management and leadership uh here in the neely school and so that is my research and teaching gig so i, I study all kinds of things related to people at work uh an l- awful lot about mobility why people uh, choose one job over another How organizations manage the flow of people into and out of organizations, people changing careers, uh, those types of things. And then I'm also, as you mentioned, I'm the associate dean for all the graduate programs. So I work with all the grad programs throughout Neely. Uh, We have eight different types of graduate programs. And uh, so those two things keep me busy. Uh, On a personal note, uh, I moved here about four years ago. Uh, So I've been with Neely for four years and uh, I think I think I've heard a quote that uh, I wasn't born here, but I got here as fast as I can, (laughs) the Texas thing, right? So I got a family, I got a wife and two teenage kids. And so far we love the Fort Worth area and we love TCU.
0: Yeah, that's great. Uh, You know, so let's kind of start, you know, we talked about, you know, you just mentioned your kind of the personal aspect, let's let's go a little further. So um, your decision to to pursue a PhD, you know, talk about kind of, you know, what led you down that career path and then also know, what led you to your specific area of focus in that career path?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, really, if you think about the two main parts of a professor's job, uh, it's doing research and teaching. And uh, it's it was an attraction to both of those things appealed to me. The research side of it is fun uh, because I get to kind of focus on uh, whatever I'm interested in and, uh, and figure out how to learn more, how to help organizations Uh, with with all kinds of different problems and issues and uh, collect data and uh, and it's uh, so I have a lot of autonomy um, and and I feel like I get to really contribute to what organizations are doing with that piece of it and then the teaching side of it is is equally fun um, and different more of it's almost instant gratification right you get in there in person whenever possible uh, but even remotely you get to you get to know the students you get to find out what they're trying to accomplish um, and try to help them with their career goals. So being a professor, you know, lets me focus on those uh, those specific things. I was always interested, actually, um, in kind of the psychology of people at work. Um, and uh, and then I got hooked up with a really good mentor uh, when I was in graduate school, which I think uh, I think a lot of people can talk to the importance of having a good mentor, who uh, who really set me down the path of uh, of studying mobility. Hmm.
0: That's great. Well, let's just jump into it. So the first article I really want to talk about uh, is kind of titled, you know, the the fear of failure for entrepreneurs or um, that's the subject matter. And uh, you know, what's wild is I'll kind of take a step back and bring in a real estate perspective. So, you know, one of the the, the hardest things to do from a real estate entrepreneur is that first deal. It's, you know, it's, it's maybe the first time you're going to your, your friends and family and saying, Hey, I, I really. I really believe in this deal you know can you give me some money or you know putting your yourself out to a lender or you know you you, you put the numbers in the excel spreadsheets but you know there's always that concern if you know as i you know i'm gonna buy an apartment complex i'm gonna put five thousand dollars you know per unit to fix it up is that really enough i don't know you know well and then kind of deciding who are your subcontractors and so it's just it's there's so many reasons why after a while you're like oh i just I just, you know I can't move forward. There's just there's just too much going on, you know. But you know, from your perspective and in, in studying, you know, the, the fear that entrepreneurs and, and the effect of fear to entrepreneurs, um, you know, what what are some of the positive and negative aspects of that?
2: Yeah. So uh, let me let me step back for for one minute. And I'll get to to your more specific question and and talk a little bit about why we started looking at fear in entrepreneurs to begin with, um, and and it was because when we talk about fear in the entrepreneurship context, there's been a good bit of research on it actually, but it's generally approached from the perspective of fear as something that might prevent somebody from going down the entrepreneurial road, that it's an obstacle or or a barrier to pursuing it. Um, But there's actually a ton of psychology research uh, that shows that, yeah, sometimes fear can be an obstacle but sometimes fear motivates people in a more positive direction um, you can probably think of of times in your own life when fear got you to work harder or to focus more on on something in in particular and uh so the academic jargon jargon would be we've got approach and avoidance motivations that are associated with fear and all the focus had been on the avoidance piece um, and we wanted to focus a little bit on on the approach piece of it as well so we actually we started with some qualitative research where we talked into and interviewed entrepreneurs uh, at different stages of their entrepreneurial journey, um, and then did a series of empirical quantitative studies. And, uh, and what we we're really trying to do in essence is define the fear of failure in this very specific context. And so it turns out that for, it's not just a, like an overarching fear but it's fear to different elements of being an entrepreneur. Um, So uh, what what popped out as the important dimensions were things like, and some of them are are very different from each other, right? There there can be a fear of your ability to finance or fund what you're doing, uh, like the example you brought up. Fear of, is my idea actually any good or not? Um, There's a fear of disappointing others, um, right? Uh, There's uh, concerns about your own financial security, if you're now completely responsible for funding yourself. Uh, Fears about your personal ability to be successful. Do you have what it takes to to be an entrepreneur? Um, And also fear associated with opportunity costs. Like, what are you not doing while you're you're over here trying to do this entrepreneurial thing? Um, And what was interesting about these and what I think might be related to the question you asked is, Uh, our research suggests that some of those are more associated with the approach motivation and some are more associated with the avoid motivation. So for example, uh, the dimensions that are related to ability to get financing, um, concerns about disappointing others, and uh, concerns about the opportunity costs that I'm missing out on, those actually seem to encourage people to uh, be more persistent and more motivated to pursue wow. the, the entrepreneurial venture, whereas things that were more concerns and fears that were more about my own personal abilities, or about whether I think I actually have a winning idea or not, that those made people more hesitant and made them uh, more likely to pull away uh, from the motivation. So I think that in and of itself is probably interesting. and. And if you think about it in the context of your question, part of it might be framing for yourself in terms of, uh, you know, if you're thinking about going to friends or family for your venture, trying to separate out, what am I really concerned about here? Um, because if you're not convinced that your idea really has potential, uh, then maybe, maybe there's a reason why you're afraid to, to go asking your friends and family to support it. And you might need to revisit it and keep thinking about what you're doing. Um, Whereas, is, is, you know, if you can frame it in terms of some of these other issues, like just in terms of things that aren't so related to you or your idea, you know, external things like finding the money and, um, and, and being willing to forego some of the opportunity costs, then it's probably easier to go and, uh, and approach people.
0: You know, it's interesting that, you know, you always hear the slogan, sometimes you can be your own worst enemy. You know kind of using what you just said, you know, if if so much of the reason people don't move forward is internal, then how many times do people have a good idea, but in fact it is themselves that hold them back from pursuing it?
2: Yeah, I th- I think that's exactly right. Wow, that's very interesting. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um you know, turnover. I have a, you know, part of Black Ecker is we have a business consulting aspect of it and you know, from my experience turnover has been a direct result a lot of times of number one there's just no element of family you know it's for you know part of it is just you know everybody shows up and, and it's a team of mercenaries uh one of the you know jack matthews um big developer matthew southwest um, both here and in canada you know he kind of said that you know really there's two different kinds of employees there's patriots and there's mercenaries you know patriot they're the loyal you know they're they're not going anywhere they bleed your company, they're going to fly the flag, you're not going anywhere. Then there's mercenaries. And mercenaries are basically, they're always looking for the the best opportunity. You know, it's always about, it's about themselves and how can they make more money. And uh, sometimes you do need to hire, you might hire a mercenary for a specific job, sales, for instance, you know, it's, I just, you know, I I want to group the sales people, but you just know that, you know, as soon as they get a better opportunity, they're gone. So, kind of the patriot mercenary, t- you know, uh, personality. Um, obviously, turnover something you know well. And uh, you know, another broad question is just, you know, you, you do kind of wonder. Um, you know, there's so many, there's so many uh, reasons that an employee might give an employer for why they're leaving, but that might not get to the heart of why they are actually leaving. So. And kind of let's, let's kind of maybe start at a broad approach of some of your, your work on turnover.
2: All right. Um you've brought up several uh several interesting avenues we could go down there. Um I'm gonna start a little bit, you know, I I am sure you're right that there are some uh individual differences in terms of people and their what they're trying to get out of work, you know, for, for example, a family versus money um type uh, environment. I'm sure there are some differences there. Um, but let's let's focus on what the organization can do, because like you said, you're, you're going to need some of all types of people in a particular organization. Um, we do know a lot about reasons why people leave and uh, and we can talk about some of that. But I'm, I'm going to turn it around for a minute, uh, because actually a good bit of my work is on why people stay, mm-hmm. uh, which is it may sound like it's just the flip side, but it's not exactly uh, just the flip side of that, and, uh, and I'll give you two, two big examples of, of where this research has gone. The first one is on building relationships at work. So we actually find that one of the primary reasons that people stay is because of their connections to others in the workplace. So you may have heard the phrase, for example, that people don't quit organizations, they quit bosses. So wow. that, that is partially true, um, that if you have a good relationship with your uh, manager or supervisor, then it it sort of buffers you from some of the other things that go on in the organization that might drive you to to leave. And it's the same with relationships with coworkers. So uh, a good bit of my research is on uh, people who are new to the organization. So how how do you onboard newcomers and those types of things? And, And one of the biggest things that comes out of that is that anything that you can do to help them rapidly form relationships and connections with others in the organization, uh, is going to reduce the likelihood of turnover, um, so so that's one piece of it.
0: Well, David, do you mind? Can, can I stay there for a second? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a, a great natural question of that is: we're in a world right now where you might not, you might have to do all your hiring, and then you know it, it's uh, you know you might have you know any new hires you have now there's a there's a chance that you never meet them face to face, and then there's, you know, obviously in that same frame, there's a chance that you won't work with them face to face. So in this kind of pre, you know, post COVID environment, how, how do you build that kind of team uh, orientation?
2: Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, and I think the short answer to that is you have to make an extra effort uh, because no one's gonna run into each other in the break room and no one's just gonna be hanging out in the hall talking about what happened over the weekend or saying, hey, do you wanna go grab lunch uh, today? Those those sort of natural collisions aren't gonna happen. Um, and so I think leadership, people in leadership roles have to take a more proactive uh, role in making sure that people are continuing to have uh, and have opportunities for social connection, whether that's you know, I mean, we know people are doing things like having virtual happy hours. And I've talked to people who, who do things like, you know, people who are normally extremely task focused saying, hey, I set aside the first or the last five or 10 minutes of every Zoom meeting uh, for personal. You know, let's yeah. catch up. Let's talk about what is uh, going on in each other's lives a little bit uh, to try and, try and build and maintain some of those social connections that, you're, that aren't happening on their own.
0: I always uh, usually have that first five minutes of personal as well, but it's usually personal into, Hey, you're on mute. Hey, you're still on mute. So that's kind of a personal interaction, I guess you could say. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. All right. So the second point. Uh,
2: The second one was about why people stay. Um, And uh, so there's been a a good bit of research that, uh, that I've done with some other folks about what we call being embedded in a job. Um, And so, what that means is that uh, it, you can almost think of somebody being in a, in a web like a web of relationships or a web of connections and if there are just a few strands connecting the person to the organization and something happens you know a bad announcement a bad day at work you know a missed c- quota your boss gets mad you whatever it is um, it's easier to break those strands than if you picture a very very dense a very very dense network um, connecting you to the organization, then even if something uh, something bad happens that might otherwise uh, lead you to think about leaving uh, it, there's a lot more holding you to the organization um, and so we do research on on really three things links to others so so connected to the relationship idea uh, fit with the organization and and with the job so do i I feel like i'm a good fit for this place and then also sacrifices that would have to be given up if you left and so you know people build up things over time in organizational settings that they might have to give up uh, if they left which could be financial right it could be you know uh you know retirement benefits or things like that that are tied to tenure Uh, but they don't have to be i mean you could think of relationships in the same way if i have lots of really good relationships at work leaving to take another job would require me perhaps to sever some of those relationships
0: yeah well said yeah just you know, one of the i guess the second point you mentioned in your three areas of study was fit and you know obviously the you know the first two points were so driven as far as your in you know your, your connectivity between your other employees at work so obviously really i could just if i could just sum it up to team you know the team is so important Well, obviously one bad apple can ruin an entire orchard. So trying to, if you're an employer, you know, trying to determine pre-hire that this is the right fit can be challenging. Do you have any tips on, you know, how to really investigate that? Is it a personality test or, you know, just what thoughts?
2: It is, it is challenging, but there are definitely ways to get at it. And, and personality testing is one way. Um, You know, what, what you have to do is on the front end, the organization has to have a sense of, you know, what, what is our culture, and, and and what is it that we're looking for on a particular team and a particular job, and then make a concentrated effort to uh, to try and assess that um, during the hiring process, and and not make the hiring just about qualifications and skills. You know, there's more to it than just does this person have the ability to do the job.
0: Hmm. And then, you know, in subsequent papers, you've also written though that turnover actually might be healthy. Um, for a
2: number of reasons,
0: yeah, let's let's talk about just where are the upsides of turnover?
2: Sure. Well, the most obvious uh, is if you have someone who is not a great performer. Um, so you have someone who's not performing and you have the opportunity to perhaps replace them with somebody who would be a better performer, or even in the in the framing that you gave just a minute ago about somebody who might be a bad apple, somebody who is just not contributing in a positive way to the culture, of the organization. If, if that person leaves and you have an opportunity to replace them with someone who's going to be much more positive, then that's a win for the organization. Hmm. I think it's also important to think about it sort of from a pragmatic point of view. Uh, zero turnover in most cases is not the goal, right? Uh, there's go- always people are going to move, people are going to leave. Um, it would be prohibitively expensive to try and and go for a 0% turnover rate in most contexts. Um, And so there's a little bit of of figuring out what's an appropriate rate of of turnover that enables us to refresh and get new perspectives and not be stagnant, Um, but then on the flip side, it's not so high that it becomes disruptive. And and of course, it's worst case scenario if it's high and if you're losing the most productive people.
0: So. You know, pay, salary increase. I need a raise. I need a bonus. Just you know, let's talk about pay. Um, you know, as you surveyed, uh, you know, the, the 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 focus group, or as you did your work to kind of figure out the motive, you know, motivating factors. You know, how high was paid generally? As as to the reasons they left. I mean, was it was it generally one factor? Was it usually the major factor, or was it something that? as i mentioned previously that somebody might say as a mask for really, you know, what's affecting them in the back end.
2: Yeah. So, uh, so when we talk to managers and ask them why people leave, they almost always indicate pay as one of the most important reasons. Um, but when we study employee turnover decisions, it's actually generally way down the list. Um, so what some, some of my work has been, uh, more academic jargon, what we call meta-analysis, uh, where we analyze the, re- the the results of studies. So basically we study studies um, to get a really big picture of what all the research says. And when we do that, um, pay and even satisfaction with pay are generally way down the list in terms of how strong of a relationship they have with turnover. And I think in a lot of cases, it's it's very much because of what you alluded to, I mean, imagine imagine a situation with somebody who um, has decided that they can't stand their boss, they can't stand their job. Most people in that position can't just say, oh, I don't like it here, I quit, right? Some people can, but most people have to say, wow, I'm I'm not happy here, I gotta find something else before I quit. And so they go out and they search and they find something else. Um, And uh, so, let's imagine if you're in a job and you're making x and you start searching for another job what's your starting point for what you want your new amount of pay to be it's probably x i mean you would have to be really unhappy to say okay i'm gonna go take a big pay cut so you go out you find a job it pays a little bit more so now you have to go and tell your manager or the hr director why are you leaving You could go into all the reasons that your boss is a jerk, or the company's terrible, or you hate your job, but most people don't want to do that. It's way easier to just say, "I have this other job making 10% more," Um, and so then somebody checks off that you know the reason that that they left is because of pay. I did research with one large organization that had um, a big list of reasons that they got from their exit interview um, for why people left. and uh, it was a big company, so this is over tens of thousands of employees, um, and it was something like 03 percent of respondents indicated that they left because of their manager. Mm. And when I dug a little deeper and I asked them, "Well, who's doing the exit interview?" It was the manager, which which makes you wonder, you know, which man- which who are the 03 percent who said it was me? Yes, they left because of me. But um, so. I mean, surely pay matters to people, um, but uh, it's not nearly as important to turn over decisions as I think we often assume it is. Yeah,
0: you, you know, and, you know, that, that's a good point, whether it is your manager that's doing the exit interview or really even HR, you know, a lot of people aren't going to give, you know, that particular reason because they don't want to burn a bridge, you know, number one or, you know, two, their industry, it's a small industry. So, you know, if they say something and it comes back around, it could potentially harm their career down the line. So you're right. I can see a number of factors on that. Um, you know, last, uh, you know, kind of big area we'll get into is fun. Well, actually, actually, I want to, let's go back a little bit. So while I'm thinking about this, so, you know, we mentioned that, you know, we just talked about pay extensively, but let's talk post COVID. So there, you know, obviously there's people that for the first time in their career, they've been able to work from home. And in some cases now they have, you know, the computer setups, um, you know, they've been fully functional and now they're not having to maybe pay for, you know, child care and, and maybe they're, you know, able to see their spouse on a more regular basis, uh, which is a benefit uh, here in this example, <laughs> but, um, for a lot of reasons now, um, it is material for them to maybe work from home. I, I'm somebody that I, I have to be back in the office i just i can't i mean i love my spouse um just in case she's watching but just uh from a from a work standpoint i i need the i need the the barrier i need the different room i need the different atmosphere i I need to see colleagues interchange on ideas you know i need all that but again it's 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 becoming more and more active that now you know, I I want to work. I want to choose a you know an employer that's going to allow me to continue to work from home. And this is a material thing to me moving forward. Are you are you, are you seeing any glimmers of the importance of this, or you know, just anything else you know on this topic before we move on in a post COVID world?
2: Yeah, it's more than glimmers. I mean, I think this is something that is top of mind for many employers and for individuals as well. And it's something that's going to have to really become a bit of a negotiation that plays out over time. Um, because from the employer side, uh, there's, there's sort of two competing things here is, is, in the short run, there's probably a lot of advantages depending on the type of work, obviously. But for work that can be done remotely, you know, we, we see companies that are pretty excited about, well, maybe I can save on real estate costs because I don't have to have as much of an office, uh, as much office space. Um, and, uh, and and maybe I can tap some laborers uh, that I wouldn't otherwise be able to capture, right? If someone's working remotely, it doesn't matter if they happen to live in the city where my office is, um, for example. But at the same time, uh, what are the long-term impacts for things like culture, team building, connections to the organization, turnover and retention, uh, those types of issues? Um, and uh, I think it's going to take some time for companies to figure out, maybe for these jobs or for these people, we need them in the office. For these other jobs, for these other people, we might be able to do more remote. Um, I think we'll, we'll see once, once the virus situation allows it, we'll see a lot of people moving back into the office. But I suspect, so I don't, I don't think it's, we're just going to all go remote for all white collar work um for some of the reasons you mentioned but i think there will be more of it than there was before and the same thing is from the individual side right we've got to um there's some people for whom this works great um there's some for whom it works great up to a point and then they feel lonely left out those types of things and there are some people for whom it doesn't work at all and uh we're gonna have to figure those things out and and we're gonna to have to be cautious and, and aware while we're doing it that just because it works well for one person in one circumstance, doesn't mean it works for everyone. Cause we are seeing some issues, for example, um, for people who have childcare responsibilities, then all of a sudden working from home all the time, it may not be this great uh, you know panacea uh, compared to someone who doesn't have those responsibilities as an example. Yeah, well said. Uh, you yeah, know, it's just gonna be interesting to see
1: Back no, especially again to going. To ahead go ahead. If I can, I was thinking about that comment because I think we are even in recruiting for graduate programs, talking to working professionals. Um, some of them are saying, relative to real estate, right? Uh, they can't continue to to manage these huge buildings and not have staff inside of them, and so they're letting folks, you know, move their work home. And are at a point where they're saying, hey, we're going to remove this lease, and we're just going to see what happens in the next six months and see if. Productivity stays at the same level drops or you know exceeds what it was doing before and so it's interesting it's almost like there's some field tests happening professionally right now with with folks working from home.
0: I mean I'll I'll just you know for me you know as I kind of moved up in my career I was able to move up because I was able to walk down the hall to some incredible leaders and just hit the you know bend their ear. You know, just, hey, what are, you, what are your thoughts? Hey, how am I looking at this the right way? You know, what, what advice can you give me? And I was able to have that interchange again with high level executives at a young age. And it just seems like you can't really replicate that. You can't just keep Zoom calling somebody. Hey, hey, can I can I grab you? Hey, hey, you know, what's going on? Hey, are you wearing a shirt right now? Can I, you know, it's, there's so many barriers to that. So I, I just, you know, you know, David specifically, you know, Christine, a very good point on, on that. And, and David, you know, going back to your research on why again, people stay particularly, you know, a big part of what you mentioned was all the we, all the webs between people working together. Um, so now if you've removed those webs and everybody's so distant, you know, creating those in real time, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, well, I think I think you you raise a good point. I mean, I think if somebody is working 100% remotely, does it matter what com- to them what company they're doing it for? Wow. It might not right and so if they get this other opportunity why if they why not uh take another opportunity so again i think i think it shifts some of the some additional burden onto leaders um to uh to more proactively try and foster those relationships
0: well and and guys too you know for both of you you know i would think that you know one of the you know one of the hallmarks of tcu is again just the student body that's there and so I know for at least, you know, my collegiate experience, you know, I'm lucky in my career now, you know, as far as, you know, I'm getting business from a lot of different people that I went to school with. And when I was in school, you know, we spent a lot of time together. We did projects together, we went out together. And so, you know, it just seems like too in academia, you know, there's so many benefits to the in-person, seeing people, interacting with people. And that goes maybe not to the webs of keeping them, you know, happy employed, but just kind of a long-term, Career asset down the road. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on that?
2: It does. I mean, one, one of the important things uh, of getting something like an MBA uh, is the network that you build, right? And that can last you for your entire career. Um, and so, again, it has put additional burden on us to try and create more opportunities for interaction. So, just as a simple example, I mean, you, you talk about so Neely and TCU is very much about this personal connected experience. Um, And so when we talk about having online classes during the pandemic, uh, for us, online classes are not, here, my slides are up online, go watch them. You know, here's a book, go read it. Um, All of our online classes are interactive, live interactive, um, which, you know, it may not be quite the same as in the classroom, but at least it gives, the students, the opportunity to engage with the faculty and with each other, uh, in that, in that context.
0: And I have to say as an adjunct, just, I, I just kudos to the leadership because, you know, I, this summer, probably at least 10 to 12 hours of training to get hybrid certified and be prepared. So, I mean, to your point, whether it's online or not, just, I, I'm just been, i just blown away by just from the technology and then from the actual kind of teaching the teachers, how to interact in this new environment. I think it's, you know, just well, well done, and, and that kind of brings me to the last area of having fun at work. So, um, you know, I was reading your paper, paper, and am I correct that in order to have fun, in, in order for your employees to have fun, you need a maximum of six ping pong tables, a basketball court, uh, a, a sopapia bar. You know, what 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 are your thoughts on that?
2: You know, I've never worked anywhere that had a sopapia bar, uh, but uh, I could probably get behind that. Okay. Um, you know, the fun at work stuff was, it was actually sort of a fun uh, side project, uh, pun intended, just because, you know, we, pre-pandemic anyway, we read a lot about ping pong tables and, and uh, you know, bars in the workplace and, and uh, especially tech companies trying to create this like really creative, fun environment for workers. So we just wanted to dig into that a little bit and, and what some of the, the things that were going on in the workplace. And do employees respond positively to that, or not? do they like having fun activities go on at work? Um, and uh, a couple of things that we found uh were one, which I think is probably really important is uh, the people in our research far prefer what we call organic fun activities, uh, which means opportunities to socialize and things that come bottom up more so than things that come top down, like the company picnic, um, or even the manager, like having everyone in an organized fashion socialize on a regular basis. Um, that it, it works better if it comes from below, but then you have a manager who is supportive of it. Right. So as opposed to if you have a manager, if if you got a group of people and they're standing by the water cooler and they're talking about, you know, the great sports that happened over the weekend for example and the manager comes by and after 10 seconds is like all right everybody back to work um that's different from somebody who who is more supportive uh, of having a a culture that kind of builds this more fun social relation uh relationships in the workplace Mm. so you know the
0: ground up fun so that's kind of you know somebody saying, Hey, just, you know, let's all just walk over to happy hour versus, you know, a calendared, structured, um, you know, happy hour that the company
2: might host on a monthly basis. Is that kind of a general thought or? It is, it is. And, and the other thing that came up that was interesting in talking to some of these, uh, these managers who were doing a good job with this is that if it's not happening spontaneously on its own um, uh, to seed, The idea with the people in your workplace who are the influencers. Uh, So that, again, instead of it coming top down from the manager, it still feels like it's a bit more organic, uh, but you can influence a bit by, you know, if you've got somebody who's clearly a leader among their peers or somebody who likes to do the fun social activities anyway, then encourage them.
0: Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, A couple questions before we end. Uh, you know, the, the non-monetary things that matter, I've uh, been, you know, I've seen companies that, you know, giving somebody an office, you know, versus the cubicle they've been in can, can, can give a, a level of respect that, that maybe the employer didn't really realize when they gave it to them. Or obviously, you know, there's the vacation days and everything else, but you know, are there, are there really, are there non-monetary, you know, inexpensive ways that, You've seen employers really make a mark on an
2: employee. Um, yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mention two that are actually free, <laughs> um, uh, and they're maybe a little bit different from what you're getting at. But one of them is that uh, is to give people hope that there are opportunities for the future. Mm. Uh, and so what I mean by that is even so right now, you know, the economy is not doing great. There's a ton of uncertainty we're, there's a lot of companies where you know we're not giving raises there's not a big promotion coming um, we're hoping not to furlough or lay off people right it's challenging times in a lot of industries um, but there's a difference between being in that environment and feeling like um, down the road if I stick here I'm gonna have some opportunities they believe in me and there and there are, are things that could good that could happen for me. Uh, versus, you know, this is this is as good as it gets, hmm. um, and so that that is one. And then the other one I'll I'll talk about for a minute uh, has to do with fair treatment in the workplace. Um, when we study fairness, we talk about it in terms of being outcome based and process based. Um, and right now, lots of people are not thrilled with a lot of their outcomes, right? If they're if you're not getting a raise or or those types of things. Uh, but what the research shows is that if people believe that the process by which decisions are being made is fair, then they'll put up with an awful lot of, uh, of not so great outcomes. Mm. Um, and so focusing on that, that decision transparency, uh, about how decisions are getting made, uh, can go a long way. Mm.
0: Last, just want to talk about, you know, what, what, what classes are you teaching or is there any any you know kind of class coming up or topic you're coming up that you know you're, you're excited to talk about just kind of as a general wrap up of you know kind of what's going on on campus
2: sure uh yeah i'm super excited so uh i'm teaching a couple of sections of a global business class to mbas uh starting up in about a month um and i love teaching that class anyway uh but this will be an exciting example for me of a of an opportunity that the The pandemic has presented that I will probably continue even long after it's gone because um, I like to bring some guest speakers into my classes. Um, I can't bring guests to campus right now. Um, And although that's a challenge, it is actually in some ways taken the handcuffs off um, because I now for my global business class, I'm gonna have a guest speaker from the UK in to talk about Brexit. And I'm going to have a guest speaker from China talk about U.S.-China trade relations, and I'm going to have some uh, speakers from Mexico talk about the revised NAFTA, for example, because wow. they're all just virtual zooming in. Um, and so I'm I'm excited about that. I think it'll be fun, and I think that's something uh, that I'll probably continue even uh, once we're able to have some folks back in person.
0: David, what I mean, so. I, uh, you know, I'm half Brazilian and I was born in Barbados, so I've I'm that rare three passport uh, person, and yeah. I think you know sometimes unless you really understand life from a worldwide perspective, you know, it's you don't have a fully functioning kind of ability to to really see the big picture. You know, I mean, it is, and you know, obviously the U.S. does things one way, but you know, for example, in Brazil, you cannot own the oil and gas underneath your property versus in U.S that alone has been a, a, an enormous wealth creator in some instances. So, you know, it's just one fact, but obviously, you know, you mentioned the UK and China and there's so many other, uh, differences in how they, they proceed good or bad. So, I mean, that's unbelievable. And, and with that, I just kind of want to end it and, and, uh, just, uh, kind of opened it, you know, you're really fortunate to, to teach at TCU, but I'm really fortunate to teach with, with somebody is, is, is just scholarly and professional and, and somebody that's really honed in on leadership and has devoted their career to studying leadership. So David, thank you for your time today. And uh, just thank you for uh, all the insights. We really appreciate you and uh, just go frogs. Thank you very much.
2: Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: Yeah, me a thank frogs. you. All right. Thank you, all Christina right. as well. Thank you very much. Bye y'all.